0: Good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. If I've not met you, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. I'm real excited to get to walk through the Word with you today. This is a fun passage, a little bit of a tough passage for me. I'll be honest. I'll say so, Well, I'll say something you've heard before as you're turning to Ephesians 6. Whenever I approach the Bible and I approach this act of um, preaching, Giving a sermon or a message. It's never going to be from the posture of expertise, right? Because I'm learning just like you. I'm growing just like you. Never more is that true than today as we go through this passage on being a parent. Um, This is something that I'm obviously growing in. I have to say that because I have teenagers here. You could always quiz them later on and ask them later on if if I'm doing a good job on this. Um, But this is a good passage for us as parents. It's going to be a tough one, though, I think. Let's look at Ephesians 6. This is gonna be the word of the Lord for us today. It's gonna help us see God more clearly in the person of Christ. And Paul says this to a very young church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Listen, if you have kids today, this is going to be a helpful passage for you. If you don't have kids today, this is going to be very helpful for you. It's not really a passage that you're going to want to skip or turn off, and especially if you have a missional posture towards the city, you have a heavy hunger to see communities change, to see the culture change. I think one obvious way that this passage can be very helpful if you do not have kids it's just to remember that as a church family, we are committed to helping each other raise our kids. I mean, this is what a kid's dedication is all about. If you've ever sat through one, we do one or two a year, and it's not just about parents looking nice with grandparents that came that look nice, that bring their nice looking kids up on stage, and we all take pictures and go home. That's actually a moment where we as a partnered congregation vow to help the parents raise the next generation to love Jesus. Jesus. In fact, I actually have vows that I typically ask the congregation that they affirm during a a dedication ceremony like that. In fact, I'll bring them up on the the screen. This is the vows. Number one, do you promise to support these families in their God-given task of raising their children to know and fear the Lord? Typically, that's where everybody says, I do, right? Number two, do you promise to help teach these children to set their hope in God, remember his works, and keep his laws? I do. Do you promise to model faithfulness such that they would have tangible representations of God's grace? I do. Do you promise to hold these parents accountable? That's, that's not awkward right there. Holding another parent accountable as to their parenting style of their kids. I mean, that's just dangerous, right? Yet we covenant to do it. Do you promise to hold these parents accountable for raising their children to know and fear the Lord? I do. We all know that this is tough. We all know it's important. I think another way that the childless can heed a passage like Ephesians 6 is to welcome the functionally fatherless into their lives. Functionally fatherless, right? So current statistics tell us that 80% of African American youth are growing up without a functional father in the household. That's eight out of 10, right? It's six out of 10 if you're Hispanic. It's half if you're white. Functional fatherlessness does not mean that a father is not in the home. It means you might actually have a father that is functionally not there, right? But the rate is high. We have an opportunity as a church to take a passage like this and, and, and have it help us, lead us into being better functional parents to the functionally fatherless. You know, one of the most beautiful opportunities I've ever had in 20 years of ministry is in our last church plant in Tampa Bay, just as this quick way to see if I could get in to a little puddle of the community and culture and see if I could be a missionary was just to be a local high school coach just to coach runners and I did it for six years and one thing that we noticed the whole time I was there is that seven out of ten we took this poll every year seven out of ten of the kids that I coached had no functional father in the home right now this is a school a large super a5 or super 5a school that's tucked away in the suburbs. But seven out of ten had no functional father, and I'm getting three hours a day with them, not including meets, not including travel. So, and some of these kids I got to see all the way through high school, which means I got my fingerprints all over them because I knew I might be the only father figure that they ever, ever have. I'm still in contact with a lot of these kids. They're not really kids anymore. In fact, a couple of them are coaches now, which is pretty fun. But I had an opportunity to shape and to disciple them as best as possible. Also... If you don't have kids, I think this passage could be helpful because some of you have parents that, to be blunt, act like kids, and you don't know how to proceed. Maybe you've had parents that you've bumped into, there's pain, there's damage, it's wrecked, and you don't know how to fix, right? And I genuinely see God being very sweet in this passage, and kind to even those broken situations, because of all the relationships that we develop on the face of this planet, none form us as deeply as the one between parent and child. That's a very heavy relationship, but what if that was not so great for you? What if that just was not so great for you? And will that affect the way that you bring up your kids, right? I mean, me and my wife, we joke about this often because I think we heard somebody else say it and we thought it was funny <laughs> that we need to be setting aside money for our kids college and we do but we probably need to set aside another little pot of money for their counseling to uh, maybe fix all of our best attempts at parenting and ha ha, ha it's kind of funny but it's a little bit true right because we're broken people trying to raise broken people and you don't just get some awesome thing all the time whenever that happens So the big question I have today is when the sin and fallenness that chase us from the garden, when sin and fallenness disrupt our perfect attempts at parenting, how does the gospel lead us out of that? I mean, how does a story, God's good story for us, bring us freedom in that? How does the story of God's beauty and favor for mankind in the person of Jesus, who came and lived, died, and lived again, giving us his Holy Spirit as he waits by God's side to bring his whole family right back together around a banqueting table? Well, how does that fix bad parenting, whether we've received it or whether we give it? I think this passage is going to be helpful for us, but for us to make any sense of it, I think we probably need to take a quick cultural temperature of it We've we've actually been very careful to do that in this book of Ephesians as we've been marching through it, not to just read it as if it was written yesterday, but to understand that there's fabric to this. It was written by by a person to a certain people at a certain time for a certain reason. And so to capture all of that I think is very important. We did that last week as we talked about husbands and wives. But a passage like this, it also kind of just reads very normal. And we hear stuff like this all the time. But back then, when Paul said this, and it was written down and carried by messenger to a young church and spoken for the very first time in front of a church plant, was a radical revolutionary idea. This whole thing right here, shocking. Like this would have quieted the room. Because in one sweeping motion, Paul gave value to children. That's new. Children didn't have value. They were valueless. This was a countercultural idea. Today we might miss that because today we have maybe a little bit a different problem. We're tempted to or have a proclivity to worship our kids. Handle them as idols. Maybe use our kids to create a sense of significance to complete us. Maybe use our kids to build an image of what we wanted to be. If we could go back in time, because when we want people to see our kids, we want them to think a certain thing about us. And I'm not here to say that that did not exist in Ephesus, but what I will say is that children did not carry the same value as an adult human did. They weren't larger than life like they might be today. In fact, they didn't have much value at all. And if kids back then when this was written, had a fraction of the value of an adult, a girl had even a fraction of that value. You would have adults, well, let's just say it this way, you'd have adult men, adult women, young men, little girls. That's how it was, that's how it was played out. I mean, just as an example, this has been helpful for me in understanding passages like this. I have friends. I don't know why I have so many of these kinds of friends, it's just the way it is. I have some friends that are ranchers of different kinds of livestock, and one thing I've learned by listening to them talk is occasionally they have to do this thing called culling the herd. Cull, C-U-L-L. When you cull a herd, all you're doing is, is you're pulling out the scrawny and the sick and you're separating them from the valued part of the livestock so to keep the value and integrity of the herd high, right? So when it comes to animal husbandry, that just kind of makes sense. But when it is applied to humans, it seems a little off. Yet that's what a lot of countries now are doing. Many countries all over the world are culling the herd. And I think this is a holdover from the ancient world. This is something that has come from a long time ago. I mean, think about it. If you're a parent, maybe in some far third world country that is still culling the herd, Remember, sons are more valuable than daughters because the sons can carry the inheritance all the way through. They're already more prominent in society and there are um, cultural traditions that allow them to take care of you once you get old. It's just more valuable to have sons than it is daughters, right? In fact, in China right now, you can go to some even of the more remote villages and they will still have the technology needed to determine the sex of a child before birth. Why? Because they're culling this happens largely in Asia, it happens in the Middle East, but in some parts of Europe still, a little bit of Africa. I'm bringing this up here because I think it gives us a good frame to kind of peer through, a contemporary example to see what is going on in this passage right here. I think it's going to be helpful for us. I mean, consider it this way. Professors at a and University have actually found the global average to naturally be 105 to 100. What I'm saying is, is for every 100 girls there are 105 guys. That's a natural ratio. But in some countries, it could be as high as 120 to 100. For every 100 girls, there's 120 guys because they are purposefully shifting the balance to produce more men because women are of less value. It is very likely that some of the hearers of this letter had called their families before Christ came and rescued them. Because remember, these kids... Their assets or their liabilities. I mean, if they're healthy and they're boys, that's a revenue stream. You could turn them into a gladiator. You could sell them off as a slave. If it's a healthy girl, you might be able to do the same thing. But if they're not healthy or if it's just a girl and you've got too many, you could throw them on the trash heap. And that's exactly what happened. The trash heap. That's how God found these people. This beautiful church of Ephesus, this is what they were rescued from. They weren't just polished people behaving well that now behave a little bit better because Christ came along. They were wretches, just like I was, just like you were. You know, what's interesting is, and this probably has absolutely nothing to do with this sermon, but one of the things I found in, the, in my study is a and found that nature actually does favor boys over girls in the beginning, right? In the beginning, the natural is more boys than girls. And one of the reasons that they found this Well, I'll just say it this way, females actually catch up. Nature favors 105 to 100 naturally, but girls catch up. The reason that girls catch up is because, statistically, they say that girls are more resistant to disease. I've never heard that anywhere else. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But what captured my attention, what I do think is true, is that girls are less prone to take risks, right? (laughs) They say, hold my beer far less often than boys do, right? They also don't fight in wars as often. They don't get in barroom brawls as often over whether the SEC is better than the Big Ten or the Big Ten is better than the SEC. That doesn't happen with girls. One of of my favorite things to do is to watch videos of people failing like so many in the room, right? But my favorite fail videos are the parkour fail videos. I could watch those all day, all night, and all the next day. I could watch them all the time because I love seeing people trying to jump and then just not making it, or trying to make a leap and not quite getting there. It's a lot of fun for me. But when I was watching these with my girls the other day, my wife came in and noted in front of my daughters, none of the people on these videos are men or girls, they're all men. They're all men. There's always a guy that's trying to jump, busting his teeth out, friends giggling, holding the camera, no one's calling 911. So I think the research is probably right. I think maybe at birth, there's probably more men. I do think girls catch up. I just think it's all a wash in the end, give or take a person. But one unique case example that we have is in South Korea. South Korea traditionally was one of those nations that would cull the herd to the point where it was 116 guys to 100 girls, right? And it was this big problem, and it was always held out as one of those countries that was most favorable towards men in general, even across the whole planet. But they changed it. They changed it, and they reversed it, and now it's back to the natural order. Now, they didn't change it by appealing to the hearts and the minds and trying to change the culture. They actually changed it by changing the laws. Pension reform, legislation moving back and forth to allow women to capture inheritance, to allow women to handle um, their parents um, with a little bit more financial ability whenever they got old, to elevate the role of the woman in society. It has never been a better time to be a woman in South Korea. But not so still in a lot of countries, right? Not so. So I just want you to keep this in mind when reading a passage like this, because it's real easy to read a passage like this, look at your study Bible, pick up a commentator, or listen to a sermon like this and think, wow, these people were screwed up. These people were super screwed up. But is it not eerily similar today? We might not use kids as revenue streams today as much, but we will still use them to construct a perfect image of us. As good, as wise, skilled parents, talented people, better, so on. I think both are dehumanizing. Both are dehumanizing. See, Paul's doing something very helpful for us in this last part of the book of Ephesians. He's reshuffling the deck The first half of the book, like in most of his epistles, he's talking about the vertical repercussions of what God has done for mankind. And then typically in the back half of all of his letters, he talks about what that means horizontally for us. That's why we talked about husbands and wives last week. He's reshuffling the deck again, right? He's doing the same thing because just as husband and wife is different now than it was in culture before Jesus, so is employee and employer like we'll find out next week, and so is parents in kid. It's not like it used to be. He's doing something else radical too. Instead of laying down laws to change things, he's appealing to the gospel to bring value to kids. This is all radical. This had never been done before. Paul is pointing to the perfect son, perfectly honoring the father, Christ, who fulfilled the fifth commandment to honor his parental oversight, and now we are here today, by virtue of the gospel, to image the same thing. We see something else in just a short amount of verses as well. Paul is also describing within a parent-child relationship where authority rightly falls. He talks about how a parent can abuse authority towards a kid, which would make bad parenting. But we also know a parent just handing the kid authority is bad parenting, You could be a belligerent tyrant as a parent, but if you give all of your authority to the child where it does not belong, then you make a belligerent tyrant as a child. So we're seeing defined where authority is supposed to be. Let's just look real quickly. Look at the first three verses again, because I think there's some very helpful things just in those first three verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Okay, so Paul is basically saying this, obey and honor, and you will make it just fine. But what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, obeying and honoring, that should happen as long as the children are living under that authority in the parents' care, per the culture, because there's different, different cultures at different times and different places, right? It might be 18 over here, it might be 17, it might be 14. That's why Paul doesn't give an age. He's really mushy there. A lot of room, a lot of room. But when a child becomes an adult, per that culture, they no longer have to obey their parents, but they always are called to honor their parents. Honor. But what if you're old like me? What if you're old like me? How is honor shown? What does that even mean? Because this is hard for a lot of people, right? Not everyone in here has a sitcom relationship with mom and dad. And maybe their handling of you was a dishonorable handling. Possibly it was abusive. Maybe you were neglected as a child. Maybe you're neglected now. How do you show honor to something like that? You know, Jesus actually speaks to this very frankly in Matthew, we'll put it up on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. It's in the fifth chapter. Jesus is speaking in verse 43. He says it this way, love, or he says, you have heard it, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Okay, so what Jesus is saying very quickly, he's saying, listen, there's a saying going around, an old saying, love those who love you and hate the haters. He said, but I'm going to flip that now. Now you love those who hate you, and you pray for them. He didn't just change it. He totally changed it. But praying for somebody's life is not sanctioning their evil towards you, is it? It's not sanctioning that. I mean, what does it look like to honor a parent in a situation like that? I mean, we do know it's just to pray for them. We do know that much. I mean, some of you ask yourself, As much as your parents have hurt you, have you prayed? Have you submitted it to the Lord? And this is what it sounds like, you're lamenting. Have you lamented what God has done? Have you lamented what mom and dad did? Have you had that moment to say, this wasn't right, this wasn't justice, this hurt me, but I'm submitting it to you. I'm giving it to you. Justice belongs to you. You're sovereign, you're big. I mean, read the Psalms. There are more laments in there than hymns, than any other kind of of genre of psalm. They're mostly laments. Have you done that? Lamented what happened as you were growing up. Prayed that God would reach that heart, that dishonorable heart. Believed God that even they could change. This is a key way to honor a parent, to lift them up, to elevate them. It's a key way to do it. It's how you value people. Listen, there is another big problem that I bump into in this text. Maybe you've seen it, and it is this. So, Luke, you're telling me that if my kids honor and obey, then they'll turn out great? Because that's what it seems like it says right here. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible promise that if you bring your kids up in the ways of the Lord, that they will never, ever really go too far, that they'll always boomerang back, that they'll never depart from it? The Bible doesn't say that. It says it in Proverbs 22. It does talk about that. But let me explain something when it comes to Proverbs. The Bible as a whole does not make a promise like that. Proverbs are general wise truths. They are wise truths. They are not all promises. To read and take every single proverb as a promise is to dishonor the literature. It's to take it totally out of context in the style that it was written. Take the Bible literally. Read the Bible literally, but according to how it was written. When you read song lyrics, you could take it literally, but not like you would tax code, right? Two very different kinds, but you could take them both literally. So you gotta be careful with this. You gotta be careful. Proverbs is communicating in vast generalities, just like Paul is here as he quotes the Old Testament. Because we all know that kids are not able to avoid tragedy or sickness whenever they honor their parents. I mean, what Paul is saying is that they are in fact endangering themselves by dishonoring their parents. That's what's being said here. If you want to jeopardize yourself, Paul says, ignore your parents. That'll bring jeopardy to you. In fact, we see Paul doing something very interesting here because he is restating the promise that is connected to the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment. Some of you spotted that, right? Because originally God promised Jewish children under the Mosaic law long life in the promised land but Paul's saying that there is no land. So what's going on? There's no promised land. Paul is giving a general promise, like longer life on this earth. I mean, typically we all know this it makes sense. Typically children who obey their parents end up avoiding many of the perils that are just going to shorten their life. We know this. It says it in another Proverbs, Proverbs 620. Stay where you're at, but I feel like this is a helpful proverb. 620. My son... Keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. And it goes on and on. It makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense. Whenever we listen to our parents about how to handle our first few paychecks, how to handle peer pressure, How to handle when we were wronged. How to handle when we ran out of choices. How we handle tragedy. When we listen to them, we did well in the land. We did well in the land. Parents, what this does not mean, God God is not promising that our kids are going to be these astronaut, millionaire, church planners that love Jesus just because we take them through a devotional every single day, never let them watch an R-rated movie, and never let them have the internet access that they've always wanted. That's not how that happens. We're not promised this. We give them our best, we let God be God. We give them our best, and we let God do what seems right to God. And I know it feels like I'm camping a little bit on this sub point of sub points, but some of you in here, you've either already seen your kids spin off, you're scared your kids are gonna spin off, Let me just tell you, whenever you see that in your family or in another family, it is not always a commentary on the level of parenting that was executed there. And it certainly doesn't mean that God is absent from the equation, right? Those are things you could take to the bank. You know, my parents, they didn't even love Jesus until I was mostly through high school. And then I'm just like you, by the time I'm at that point in high school, I'm pretty much one foot out the door anyway, right? I'm working a bunch, I'm involved in school a bunch, we're just always ships passing in the night. I never really got to see my parents be Christian parents. So by the time I went to college, I loathed going to church. This thing, this, this rhythm of going to church, that's just what they started doing. That's not really what I wanted to do. In fact, anything, because I was a teenager, anything my parents did, I didn't want to do. I wanted to be totally different than them. So ask my mom now how shocked she is that God was God and just did what he wanted with me. Because I certainly wasn't headed down that road. And they, sit, they certainly didn't do some James Dobson work of parenting on me, right? But I'm here. Why? Because God won't be frustrated. Because he he won't be frustrated. He gets what he gets, and he gets what he wants. You do the best you can as a parent. You let God be God. All right, let me go on. Let's look at that fourth verse in Ephesians. I lost my place, I gotta go back. Ephesians six, verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, now this is cool. What I like about this part is it shows what we talked about way back in week one when we started this series. 30% of Ephesians is repeated in Colossians. They overlap considerably, a lot of redundancy because they are two young churches dealing with a lot of the same problems and you got the same guy talking to them, right? So in Colossians it says, fathers don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You're seeing some of the same thing. This is another revolutionary statement, it doesn't sound like it to our ears today, but it was huge back then. Because in Greco-Roman societies, dads, they could do anything they wanted. They had absolute authority. They could even have members of their own household killed, legally. One thing they didn't have to do, consider their kids' feelings. Feelings? Well, that's new, right? In this thing called Christianity, where Paul is saying now, you are responsible, dad, you are responsible, mom, for how your child feels. Why? Because they're people. It's honoring the personhood of who they are. And this is true for us today. We're responsible for that. We're responsible. So what I thought I could do, because provoking to discouragement does not equal don't make your kids angry. Can we all agree when we are kids and Kids we have, they're little sinners. And when you tell them no, they stomp their feet and get mad. What Paul is saying is is don't do that. Give them what they want. That's definitely not what he's saying. So what is he saying here, right? I thought the best way I could help you is to give you Luke's top ways to provoke and exasperate children today. Just as a help to you, (laughs) this I am an expert in, as I said earlier. If you want to provoke your kids, number one, treat them like adults in moments of discipline. After all, you were super mature when you were their age that'll provoke them. Sometimes I could really screw up and forget that my kids are kids. I could forget that they're kids, all full of hormones and question marks and fears and brains that are still developing. And when I forget this, I'm expecting this excellent deliverance, this excellent performance from them that I don't even know that an adult could do And I don't think that's wise, it's definitely not fair because the gospel picture we have of God as the perfect father towards his children is God moving towards us with thoughtful consideration. He's thoughtful. When he handles me, he's not handling me as a 60-year-old man in the Lord because I'm not and I'm far from it. He is able in his brilliance, in his noble generosity to approach me just where I'm at and not give me too much to carry from where I'm at in life. This is helpful for me. Likewise, I need to seek the Lord and we need to seek the Lord on how to parent our kids for every year of their life. Because let me just say, they don't stay toddlers for long and you definitely don't parent a 13 year old like you do a 17 year old. Good luck with that. Two totally different worlds separated by four Christmases. That's it, that's all it takes. Totally different people. But as they grow, that maturity, it calls for a different level of parenting. That's on me. Number two top way to provoke your kids compare them to other kids whenever you get the chance because who knows it might motivate them to be more impressive (laughs) and they pick up on this too by the way and it's not a public school thing either and it's not just a homeschool thing either it's an everything all kinds of parents do this and sometimes they don't even know that they're doing it and I think sometimes as parents we get scared and we see a kid across town do something and we think that our kid is screwed up listen hear me If your kid does not rack up 32 college credits before they're a junior in high school, they'll be okay. They'll be okay, they'll be just fine. I know the kid down the street did it, not your kid, not your kid, you handle your kid. Because we also have another thick gospel picture of how God as a father handles us. Because when he came, part of the gospel story is he destroys a comparative ranking system. It's gone, no more rankings. We sit at a table, we sit at a table, as an equal with everyone else around the table, led by Jesus, the first blood, or the firstborn from the death, our better sibling. So one way we can help our kids see people in God's image is to basically parent them without comparing them. If they get used to being compared, they will always see other people as either beneath them or above them, and that's going to be a problem. And before I kick off that, why do you want them to be so better than the kid down the street anyway? That's probably a different sermon. But why is that so important? Number three, there's only six of these. Number three, top way to provoke and exasperate your kids. Whenever possible, be inconsistent in discipline because it's nice to spice things up and keep variety in the playlist every now and then. Now listen, this one's a personally difficult one for me and my wife just to be a little bit vulnerable because we're still figuring out as we're moving along. I feel like we're making it up as we go along sometimes, right? Because we'll try parenting in one way and it seems to work, but only for like a week. So we switch it up and call an audible and try something else, and it doesn't work at all. And then we read that Ted Tripp says do this, we do that, and then we read a a blog, or we hear another family talk about it, and I feel like we're just doing everything that we can. The point I'm trying to make here is not that. The point I'm saying is, is don't think consistency in how you execute discipline, but that you execute discipline. That you do it. Because hear me, parents, those kids, they test the fences every day, like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. They test them every day. Was the foul yesterday still a foul? Will it be a foul tomorrow? Because I know how it is. We get excited. We're all happy. It's a good mood. We don't want to spoil the mood by disciplining our child. So all of a sudden, Junior gets away by punching Sissy or throwing a tantrum, and what we're really teaching our kids in that moment is the consequences change based on mood. But again, that's not the gospel picture we have. And how a perfect father handles us as his kids. God is thoughtfully consistent. Not a lot of shifting in the gospel story. It's a story of stability. A sin is a sin. The cross is the cross. Atonement is sure. Your spot will never be taken. It's a story of consistency. The gospel is of a consistently rebellious people being consistently pursued and cleaned by the Holy Spirit to do what? Live consistently (laughs) to a God who exists in glory consistently. There's not a lot of shifting in the story. Not a lot of shifting. Number four, be careful not to be too generous with encouragement and approval because you don't want them to get soft or something. Listen, it'd be, too, it'd be too generic. I'd rip you off by talking about how to be encouraging with your kids outside of discipline. Let's just zero in on when it's hard. And that is talking to your children in the midst of discipline. That's when it gets difficult, right? Because when we're not careful, what we could do in discipline is inadvertently teach our kids that love is withdrawn whenever we see a sin. When they screw up, we put a moratorium on intimacy. We call it the silent treatment. We call it the silent treatment. And what that teaches kids is that when God sees a foul, he disappears, disappears. Therefore, God's discipline means God's distance. You gotta be really careful. And it's always awkward to do this. And if you had parents that did not do this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You'd get in trouble and you just knew you'd have to to scram, right? You'd have to leave for an hour, a day, a week, before things kind of went back to normal. Why did they go back to normal? Because the sting of everything wore off. What wore it off? The gospel? No, just time. Just time. But we've got to do better than that because we have the gospel. But it can sound awkward in the moment. This is what it sounds like. Sweetie, I'm going to whoop your butt, right? But I am so honored to be your dad. That's awkward. I love you. I'm ferociously in love with you, and I am honored. One of the deepest joys is to be your father. I am going to whoop your butt. But, listen, I love you. Lots of hugs. Lots of approval and encouragement. No silent treatment. You see where this goes? Yes, I whoop my kids. Listen, showing approval, you can email me if you want. I'm sure I'll respond. When you show approval... You are encoding that discipline is not punitive. And that's important because discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Punishment is punitive. Discipline is not. Discipline is shaping them for their good and for the glory of God. Punitive might be God's justice, but it is punitive in the fact that it doesn't really matter if they are rehabbed in the moment. But we're called to discipline our kids. I don't want to demand a distance until the sting wears off. Can you see the gospel picture in how a good father handles us in this? Because God's approval towards us happened when? When we were found at our worst. When we were at our dirtiest is when the gospel was most beautiful. Where intimacy and approval flowed towards us. Not wrath. It was punitive. Why? Because punitive wrath fell on a better sibling for our benefit. It's the gospel on display. All right. We see this in Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews is quoting Proverbs, and he says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If we want our kids to understand that discipline means being loved, then we have to love them in the midst of discipline. It's not rocket science. It's just hard to do. Fifth, this is a quick one. The end justifies the means, so make sure that they hit all of their marks and succeed in this world no matter what. Friends, listen, it's going to discourage your kids and provoke them to anger eventually if they don't know why the important things are important if they don't know why the important things are important, if you pull the motive out of what they do in life, if you pull the philosophy of life out of behavior, pull all the doctrine out, pull all of the worldview out, and just tell them, get good grades, get good job, get married. If you just tell them that and they don't know the why, it's gonna lead to frustration. You'll build a Pharisee. You'll build a Pharisee in a heartbeat. Studies actually show that what causes the most rage in teenagers, the most rage, is the teenager having to face life without adequate direction from their parents. They don't know what to do. They think they're behind. Looks like everybody else is winning and they're losing and they're confused and they don't know who to talk to. And they're scared. No one is telling them. No one is helping them. And what is the response? Rage. Rage. Number six, be sure to overprotect your kids because something bad actually can happen. So do everything for them and protect them from failure. Listen, sometimes when you see that, that train wreck happening in slow motion, right, as a parent, the best possible thing you can do is let it happen. Let it roll. Because sometimes that level of suffering is a very kind school for them. Again, there's a gospel picture in this of a very good father where we learn by suffering. Why do we learn by suffering? Because suffering removes our bigness and it places us in a moment where we have nothing. But what do we notice? God is big. Suffering is how we learn to cling to the Lord in those crucial moments. Delure is a kind school. I was thinking this morning when I was praying over this word, about when I started working, I started working when I was 13 years old, but it was one of those jobs where they kind of handed me cash at the end of the week. I'm not totally sure it was legal, given labor laws and everything. (laughs) Um, But my first job job, where I had like a paycheck that came in the mail, it was a legitimate job, was when I was 16. And I got that job because I got in a car accident that week, right? In fact, I'd only been driving for two weeks. My driver's license was still a paper one. I was like 11 and a half days old behind the wheel. Driving home from school, from high school, saw a girl on the side of the road, gave it a little honk, right? And ran into the car in front of me. That car ran into the car in front of it. It was a total disaster. So Luke gets a job, right? Took me 18 months to pay that that whole mess off. My parents could have wrote one check though. They could have wrote one check and taken care of all of that. And they said, no, you're getting a job, bud. Not because the family couldn't afford it, but because they knew that that level of suffering was going to teach me more than I would learn in school that year, which it did. It taught me more than I ever learned that year in school. Listen, in all seriousness, when I read a list like this, when I read a list like this, it's going to be easy as a parent to hear it and think, man, I am screwing up my kids so bad, right? Or maybe I've already screwed up my kids so bad. Tony Marita says it this way. He's a brilliant pastor. He says, some days I think success in parenting means keeping kids out of prison. On other days, I think it's keeping myself out of prison. (laughs) I totally get it. So how are you as a parent processing that feeling that you're totally failing? How are you dealing with that? The answer is, is you apply the same gospel to yourself that you are your kids not just the gospel to become a Christian, but the gospel that sustains us in life here where we find our satisfaction in the glory of God and the person of Christ today, where we're satisfied and completed by God himself. We apply that gospel to ourselves because the only perfect parent is God the father. The only perfect kid is God the son. Jesus was a perfect son. He gave perfect respect and perfect honor to a perfect father at the perfect time for an imperfect people for an imperfect people. And now this perfect father is your father. Is your father. And you have the rights of a perfect child. This brings a lot of freedom to broken parents. This means that all of your failures, all of your moments of discipline and love that you totally failed in, all the balls you fumbled, all the intentionality that you squandered, all the regrets that you have, all the fears that they're going to fail in this world because you did something wrong as a parent, all of the oppressive thoughts or depressive thoughts of abject failure, they don't determine two very key things, God's love for you and God's control of your kids. They don't control either one of those. God's love for you is unmoved. It's unmoved. Unmoved. And his hand is not tied behind his back. There are way... Way too many illustrations to mention here today where parenting that was not varsity level parenting ended in passionate, Jesus-loving kids. Way too many. I'm one of those stories. My wife is one of those stories. Kevin is one of those stories. Chase is one of those stories. We, We have so many stories here like that. You do the best you can. You be strong, you be courageous, you be intentional, And then just let God be God and trust that he loves your kids more than you love your kids and his plans for your kids are better than your plans for your kids. That takes a lot of trust, but it makes us free. We're free, we're free from the need to break our kids to avoid the feeling of failure. Don't have to break them anymore. We're free from the need to break our kids and attempt to make them what we wish that we were. We're free to show love and approval when they deserve it the least. We're free to honor our failed parents who screwed up so bad with us. We're free to be failed parents that screw up every day. Why? Because we have a better family portrait. We, as God's people, have a family portrait where Jesus, our better brother, our better sibling, the firstborn from the dead, goes before us to commune perfectly with the perfect father, our flawless father. Tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. Because even the meal, as we're about to go into worship, the team's gonna come back, they're gonna lead us. We had the communion elements in the back, but even that, even the communion elements, the, the picture of a broken body and spilt blood is to do what? To collect the family. To collect the family. In this better family portrait, where we are around a banqueting table again someday, where you are in a chair that can never be taken away from you, you have a place with the, the king of all of the cosmos, a place where you have royal blood in your veins that can never be removed from you, where you can enjoy and celebrate the goodness and the glory of God forevermore. That is given to you because of what we see in broken bread and, and juice. Because our better firstborn goes before us, taking something that we deserved and not giving us what we do deserve so listen, as we start to sing and as we go back in groups and clumps, if you're new here, people will go back there whenever they feel like it pretty much during the music and take communion on their own. I just want you to consider some things. How are you doing honoring your parents and no, I don't care how old you are. How are you doing? What does that look like? Right? How are you doing as parents? How are you doing applying the gospel to yourself? If your kid's in here, how are you doing? listen, I know your parents don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing, but they're doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can. They deserve honor. They deserve honor, not because they're awesome. They deserve honor because God has set them up as an authority in their life, and it's gonna be a picture of the gospel. It's gonna be beautiful. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you. We don't just thank you for giving us a good word. We repent. I repent, Father. Father. I repent for being harsh, for being mindless, for being critical, I repent for not trusting you, I I repent for panicking as a father, as a parent. As a son, I repent for dishonor, dishonoring, disrespecting, looking down upon, not praying for, not forgiving, not loving, not lamenting. Lord, we repent as a people because your gospel has rearranged the way parent-child interaction should happen. So Lord, what we ask is that your Holy Spirit would would employ us to do the very thing, the very thing that we're reading about, the very thing that, whether it's hard or easy, we take all of our joy in you, so we we just do the hard work. We do the hard work of forgiving. We do the hard work of investing. Lord, we love you and we thank you. This is a hard word, it's hard. Every family is dysfunctional to some way. Everybody's got a daddy issue. Nobody walks out of the house unscathed at the age of 18. It just doesn't work that way. So much brokenness, even in the best households. We just pray, Lord, your goodness is so good to us that we're able to move through that and heal and glorify you with how we parent our kids and how we are kids towards our parents. So we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm. Mm